Well, this was bound to happen sooner or later, but uh, today it actually has. We have an ad read for you to kick off this episode about the movie made by this week's guest, who is also <laughs> appearing on the show to promote her movie. Her name is Roxanne Benjamin. She directed uh, Body at Brighton Rock. Uh, she worked on VHS, VHS 2. She shot a segment in Southbound. And mm -hmm. this week, she has a brand new movie out called There's Something Wrong with the Children, which I am here to tell you about today, both before the show and during the show. In There's Something Wrong with the Children, a group of friends on a weekend cabin trip begin to suspect something supernatural was at play when the kids behave strangely after disappearing into the woods overnight. There's Something Wrong with the Children is the latest horror film from Blumhouse Productions, available to buy or rent on digital now. This film is not yet rated, uh, but I just do want to say that Eric and I both saw this one and had a blast with it. And um, the cast, which is not mentioned in this in this ad read, which includes Amanda Cruz, Zach Guilford from Midnight Mass, Alicia Wainwright, and Carlos Santos is excellent. We liked this movie, didn't we, Eric? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. And you have evil kids being evil, which is always yeah. a cornerstone for us horror nerds, for sure. Yeah. A great horror movie and also a, a, a great reminder never to have kids. Uh, <laughs> right. If you, if you haven't already. If you have, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you'll hear a lot more about that in the episode to follow. And I guess that leaves the Fangoria read to me, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. All right, let me let me get centered. Let me get ready. <clears throat> Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. Not only is Fangoria highly collectible, if you get yourself an annual subscription, it comes right to your door four times a year. A delicious package filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid King Cass hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, not online, so if you want to read all this fun stuff, you're going to need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your order. Excellent job, Eric. And with Thank all you. of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Go see a dead well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. This week's guest is making her first ever appearance on the KingCast gang. And what a triple threat she is. She's the producer of VHS and VHS 2, the director behind 2019's Body at Brighton Rock. And this week's There's Something Wrong with the Children, which I really dug and we're going to be talking about here in a moment. Uh, as well as the writer-director behind segments in horror anthology Southbound and XX. She's here today to tackle Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery 2, a film which... We have somehow never had someone sign up to cover in the main feed, so this is really exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ms. Roxanne Benjamin to the KingCast stage. Roxanne, how are you doing today? Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Yes. Hi. Uh, I'm happy to have you here, too, because uh, we caught your movie this weekend and really enjoyed it. Yay. Yeah, it's super good. And I also understand, what, having watched it, uh, why you wanted to talk about Pet Cemetery too. Because there is a a little bit of a through line of uh, of people coming back, a slightly yeah. different. So, 
So good on you. Good, good theming. <laughs> I just want to say right up front. Yeah, we're we're right on theme. Um, thank you, thank you, Roxanne. For anyone who might be unfamiliar with, there's something wrong with the children, or maybe hasn't seen the trailer. Would you explain what that's about? Oh God! So I am terrible at this. This is why I probably don't do any <laughs> bigger movies because I suck at pitching, and I need like to hire someone to come in and do the song and dance for me because I can't do it. Like. If it comes to an elevator pitch, it's like I have to hit the emergency button and lock everyone in with me while I go into detail about like what everyone ate that morning on the first scene. Um, <laughs> do you want me terrible. to do it for you? Basically, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Okay. I've been practicing. Okay. So the sad part is this is probably the best iteration of this. Uh, two couples. One has kids. One does not. Longtime friends go off on a weekend jaunt. Um Both couples are dealing with kind of some underlying simmering relationship issues. The childless Mm -hmm. couple watches the kids and uh, manages to lose them overnight. And in the morning, all hell breaks loose, uh, both on the relationship front and the oh, fuck, evil kids front. (laughs) You nailed it. You nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're selling yourself short. (laughs) <laughs> this movie. I want to watch it again, and I just watched it this morning. So, <laughs> this movie uh, smashed a number of my buttons. Um, I really, I, I, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for an evil kid movie. Uh, I'm a sucker for a unexplained hole in the ground that does weird things movie. Um, I'm a sucker for you know, like the the dynamics between people who do and do not have kids. You know, um, I'm I'm at an age where. I probably should have kids now if I was going to. I'm not, um, which means that a lot of my friends do. And that yep. that can lead to some weird tension sometimes. And, um, you know, it, it was all there. And really what I loved about this movie was that it's it's very straightforward. You know, it's I've seen I've seen a lot of movies lately that are like three hours long and a little <laughs> a little rambly. Or, um, you know, uh, bogged down in their own mythology and over explaining things. I love that you kind of left a fair amount of um, the spooky stuff in this open to interpretation. And, it's because I uh, hate I, explanations. I hate explanations. I hate that scene that's like, well, back in the 1500s, <laughs> the whatever's came and the ritual and we got to find the MacGuffin to do the thing and that unevils the kids. And like, if you'll notice in this, no one is trying to fix the problem. So really like having that kind of explanation as such like would feel just like kind of a weird executive, like, oh, we need that paragraph that someone has to spew at some point. Right. And hopefully there's enough kind of like breadcrumbs throughout of like what I'm metaphorically going for and what I feel about nature versus nurture versus, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I put a big fucking giant birth canal in the woods, you know, like what, <laughs> I don't know how much more uh, obvious in my themes I can get um, and then what Margaret thinks of that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's it didn't really fit the script. It didn't really fit the story since no one's trying to fix the problem. They're just trying to really convince people there is a problem. And then once anyone's like, Oh shit, dude, I guess you're right. It's like too late. So that's kind of like my, my perfect scenario because I hate that part of every horror movie. Well, I was going to say you, you also don't go on the other extreme where you leave everything ambiguous. Is it all in his mind? Cause one of the, the first person to kind of catch on to things not being right is, 
a character who uh, has had some mental instability, right? So naturally it makes it harder for people to believe him, but you could have also, you know, gone too far into the, maybe it is, is all in his mind and whatnot. You, yeah. you make a definitive answer, you know, pretty, pretty quick in, <laughs> into the third act of like, okay. Which is yeah. Definitely intended. Definitely intended. I'm glad you're seeing that because, uh, I feel like it kind of goes back and forth of people taking it very literally of the like, oh, it's the trope of the mental illness, so he's not believed, ugh. And it's like, well, yes, that's the point, that it's kind of gender flipped for once that, you know, (laughs) our kind of male character is the one who's getting gaslit through the first half and being told he's being hysterical. Uh, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I didn't want it to be the like, oh, well, he's on med, so he's just like maybe crazy. Like, I I hope it comes across the audience that like, we know that he's not from the very first moment he suspects anything that we know that he's not. And it's brought up early on too, when Ellie's asking, you know, kind of subtly in the beginning, like, how's he doing now? You know, so I'm yeah. hoping mm-hmm. that kind of comes through that it's like laid out a little bit. And I always, I meant to do this at the one screening that we had to just ask, but I didn't know how people would feel about it, so I didn't do it. But like, I wanted to be like, raise your hand if you have ever been on an anti-anxiety or an antidepressant right now, who, you know, before we started this movie. And I'm sure it would have been like at least 75% of the audience. So like, (laughs) (laughs) I understand how in our older horror movies that this was like a more kind of taboo subject. And it was like a big kind of, we don't talk about this. And I definitely grew up in that era of like mental health was not considered like, you know, it was like the stiff upper lip, shove it, shove it under the rug, like mm-hmm. suck it up kind of uh, era of the 80s yeah. and uh, early 90s. So it just kind of feels very dated to me as like just a general trope. So I, I hope it, it, it becomes clear that I'm like trying to play into the fact that it's a dated trope uh, right. within within the story. Now, it, I, I really quickly, I want to say it should be noted that the person we're talking about, the character Ben, is played by Zach Guilford, who should be familiar to all of our Flanniverse listeners. We have a whole lot of Mike Flanagan fans that <laughs> oh, listen to the show. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was ostensibly who you thought was the main character of Midnight Mass and whatnot. He's worked with mm-hmm. Flanagan a lot. Uh, so you'll recognize a, a few people, actually, in your cast, you know, or, or recognize Amanda Crew as well from uh, she's in a great movie called Sex Drive that hardly anybody saw. It was like a like a legit good like teen sex comedy. Is that the Sorry, one I Zach know- Gregor did or no, that was Miss March, right? Mm. That was like him and what was his name? Oh, my God. The whitest kids, you know, Trevor Moore. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm thinking of something else. Never mind. Yeah. Nope, not that. I feel Sean Andrews is the both her and Carlos Santos, I know from kind of more comedic roles and from kind of like the comedy scene. Cause way back in the day I started in like a comedy management company, which is why I have so many people kind of from that world in the stuff that I do, like Dana Gould and um, Susan right. Burke and stuff like that. We, you know, I, I came from like kind of that world before I got into like the horror side of things out here in the industry. Um, and I just love that they're both so versatile like obviously the horror and comedy goes together as we know, like uh, peanut butter and chocolate, but 
I just feel like Amanda is such kind of like an underrated gem when it comes to the drama side of things because she's known so much for the comedic mm. stuff or even just kind of straight horror movies. And I think she kind of really does some heavy emotional lifting that I kind of threw at her in the middle of this yeah. Yeah, you romp, in, in this middle of a romp <laughs> of a horror movie. Like she's got to deal with like real shit, which is yep. kind of rough. And she really kind of handles some of those tonal shifts with ease. Um, yeah. I cannot recommend her enough to the, the other whole filmmakers cast is out great. there. Alicia Wainwright's really great, too. Oh, I just, she's great. Man, I just had a lot of fun with this movie. And I'm, you know, this is something I've kind of harped about on the show before, is that I'm a little burned out on, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, like trauma horror. You know, that's yes. a little dour, a little like, you know, just fucking kind of a mildly depressing to sit through on top of everything else. Like yeah, I want not everything can be the Babadook. Yeah. Right. Um, or hereditary or like a million, of, you know, there's as good as they are. Yeah. As good they as they are. The yeah. Yeah. Flavor. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. You know, you set the gold standard and then a, a bunch of people come chasing that same gold standard and they're just, it's not landing in the same way, you know, but the horror stuff that I've really been responding to lately has all been, what I would classify as fun whore, like Megan. Yeah. Uh, sick. I loved Sick. That's oh, you talk I almost about- watched it last night and I fell asleep. I'm so bummed because it's the same uh, cinematographer on Sick as it is in my movie. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, I yeah, noticed that. You're on Levy. Yeah. It's um, oh man, it's it's lean, mean has a has a uh, very satisfying resolution. I thought you know. Right on. Um, it's it's Hyams directed the shit out of that. Mm. I saw that I, and I saw your movie back to back and was just like, <laughs> fuck yeah, man. Fun horror is back, son. <laughs> yeah. I, I think of it as like slumber party horror, you know, yeah. that like it's right. just you get together with a bunch of people and you're just laughing and scaring each other silly in the dark. And like that also probably speaks to the fact that my tastes have not grown since I was like 13 years old. So maybe that's a me <laughs> problem. But like that's where I live in the horror genre. And you know, I also came up like producing the VHS movies with all of these horror directors who, for the most part, also fall along that line, like Adam and Simon with Your Next, and then going from there to like The Guest and, you know, Radio Silence doing Ready or Not, and then the Scream movies. And so that's kind of that we all had this same aesthetic feeling about movies, which is how kind of Southbound came around as well because we were like we just want to do something that's like fun and weird together Mm, and uh it's funny every time we all get together we're like man we miss making movies together because it's such a it's such a blast and I, I think it's not something you get to experience a lot and I was very lucky in that regard that that was kind of my intro to filmmaking 101 on the ground was working with all these guys because you when you become a director you're just kind of like an island and of course like no movie is made as an as a solo endeavor, but when you're kind of the person where the buck stops here outside of like your negotiations, you have to do always with like the studio or executives or whatever to keep the vision on track. Like it's kind of a lonely endeavor. And I don't think people realize that as much. So Mm. when you have a group of you working together and it's kind of like, this is the thing of ours that we do and it's us against the world. It's, it's a really cool intro to uh, filmmaking that I'm, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm very lucky that I had. Uh, and you also co-produced uh, a movie that I want to give a little shout out to on the air, uh, The Devil's Candy, which I saw at 
fantastic best <laughs> yeah i fucking i really like that movie i had kind of forgotten about it you know i really enjoyed it but it's like one of those ones that just got memory hold somewhere along the line yeah and so yeah and now i'm excited to have the reminder because I'd, I'd love to see that thing again mm. a lot of fun yeah that yeah, was like shot that down too. right outside of austin and yeah. in uh, flugerville um yeah. <laughs> shit yeah right yeah. north of austin we were in the high school there we kind of based everything out of the high school and then um also, weirdly enough, that's where Riley is from, Riley Stearns, who yeah. kind of in that same time period, uh, I was working with Keith and Jess Calder and like kind of learning how to make bigger movies underneath them. And yeah. uh, we were also doing his first movie, Faults, at the same time. So it was like kind of a weird tie-in. So I guess we should we should start here with um, your Stephen King origin story. Um, what is your Stephen King origin story? I just repeated myself. <laughs> So I was a I was a lonely kid. I you know I was very kind of uh, quiet and shy and didn't mm-hmm. talk much. But I read like voracious. I was a voracious reader. So every, anything that was around, I picked up. And uh, the two authors that were lying around the house and the books that were around that I would pick up were either Stephen King or He Who Shall Not Be Named on this podcast. <laughs> and of the two, it was Stephen King that like one the covers drew me in, which you can probably see from like my general aesthetic, like that has continued. I think you've got the same font for the uh, yes, for yes. The, <laughs> there's something wrong with the children title treatment. That's true, and it's funny because uh, when the trailer came out, they did change the font a bit, but I still think it feels more in the Pet Cemetery world with like or the thing with like the fog coming through. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, it's it's you could hear the younger generation because they're like, oh, it's the Stranger Things font, and I'm like, oh, kids, <laughs> children, you don't know. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> We're stealing from the same source, my yeah. little guys. <laughs> yeah. We got I the same re- influences, friends. I, I seem to recall seeing a very misguided person say that when the first It came out, like It Chapter 1, that it was ripping off Stranger Things. I love like, that. Buddy, it's the snake buddy. eating itself. It's yeah. so funny. I can't wait until they discover. <laughs> so did, you, um, did your parents read King? Is that why it, it was, was on my mom. It was my mom and my aunt's. My mom and my aunts would always be trading paperbacks and trading, you know, when the hardcover came out, like we came from, I mean, I wasn't in a lower class family, but I was in what was considered a middle class family in rural Pennsylvania in the 80s. You know, I had to, mm-hmm. my my mom was a, a teacher and later became a superintendent. And my dad was like the head of the utility company, like the water company. So he worked for the city. So hardcover books were like a, a, a luxury Mm -hmm. item i guess and they would get passed around between my mom and her sisters and so then they would be around the house and so they were very much also like you take care of these things uh because they're so valuable and i would always get in trouble because i would i was um a kid who like i had like a milk crate that i filled with books and then i would like pull it up on a rope into this apple tree and i would sit up in this apple tree (laughs) for hours reading these books, reading these Stephen King books until it would get dark outside. And then I would like, you know, it's the thing of like, you're just doing something and you look up and you're like, oh, it's dark. And I am sitting in the dark, empty house. How did this happen? But that, but outside. And then I would like kind of just look up and it'd be like, oh, I'm sitting in the dark in a tree. 
in the woods. Um, you, did very you have like a little platform that you were sitting on or you just straight up? No, I had it? some like old moldy rugs. It's very gross. Um, but like as a kid, you're like, I found this scrap of rug in the garage and it's like covered in gasoline and oil and like your dad's throwing it away. But you're like, this is going to be great for the clubhouse. Um, that and like, you know, we had like my my family is also stonemasons and bricklayers. So we had a lot of like construction materials around. So I think there was some, you know, kind of flat wood chunks and bricks and concrete, concrete things as well that I was uh, uh, kind of building up around the base of this tree that just looked like, you know, a trash pile and then a child with a milk crate sitting on top of it in a tree, Um, which I also thought was like hugely, like I was like, invisible to the world and up so high and whatever and like I go back now and that tree is still there in like back along the like uh, tree line in our, my dad's house and it's like six feet like probably the branch <laughs> right. that I was sitting on like if I fell off of it I wouldn't even break anything you know but to right. me it was like oh I'm an adventurer adventurer yeah. out here in the wild it's like mm-hmm. you can see the house from here <laughs> what books were you reading up in your your little gasoline rug filled tree tree branch salem's lot is the first one i remember but i Mm. know there was probably some short story collections that were before that as well um pet cemetery is definitely one i remember the cover of but i don't think i don't think i read it at the time because my mom saw me picked it up and she like grabbed it from me because she knew i would like lose my mind like I think I said something about this the other day on Twitter that like I I need someone to tell me if anything happens to the donkey and EO because like I can't watch it or I'm gonna like lose my mind if something bad happens to the donkey so like it's the same thing like as a kid I was very very sensitive and she knew I would be like wrecked by anything happening to to the 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 pets in pet cemetery so she pulled that one away from me but yet not Salem's lot where like children are dying left and right like that was fine uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah like infants infant you know abuse shaken yeah. baby syndrome yep. happens in, early on in that book yeah you got the vampire kids any sort of like uh human mortality was fine but like you come for our pets and that's that's a step too far that's about right though I've carried that with me into my adulthood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yet Did you, you ever... picked a movie that has absolutely fucking nothing but wall-to-wall animal death in it. But uh, we'll that get to that true. in a second. I know. Dude, it is, is rough. True. Like, I, we we have not covered this. It's his son's dog. Like, what? <laughs> Dude, and then there's that, like, prolonged death sequence with the dog where it's just like... Oh, it's such oh. a fucking bummer. Bleeding man. out in the, the poor the fat kid's lap. so yeah. great. The music yeah. is so amazing. <laughs> the soundtrack uh, on this is solid. When uh, L7 kicked in, I was like, oh, fuck yes. I forgot yeah. that was in this movie. Yeah, I think like I Jesus typically- Mary Chain is in there too. It's like you can, yeah. I, I hope you can also tell like kind of my influences like sonically throughout There's Something Wrong with the Children also kind of harken back to this mm. where it's just these insane needle oh, yeah. drops and insane score drops that are like coming in these yeah. emotional moments and bashing you over the face. It's like. You, My favorite you've thing. got a great needle drop like right off the bat in that one too. Yes. Like, over the over the opening sequence. Yeah. Oh. I'm, like, yeah. I really couldn't hit it more over the head what I want this movie to be. <laughs> <laughs> so um Pet Cemetery 2. You you told me you recently wrote a thing about Pet Cemetery 2. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Oh yeah, it was for Letterboxd, like their Horrorville thing. Um, they had asked for like my influences for there's something wrong with the children. And I was going through and it was almost this kind of like, oh shit, like I feel like I didn't study for the test and I feel like I should know this because I made the movie and it had to have been influenced <laughs> by something, you know, but it's not how my brain really works. So it's almost like reverse engineering it mm-hmm. by like going back and looking and I didn't really have, I wasn't good at Letterboxd, like in the last couple of years. So I had just like notes on my phone and I was like, what was I watching around the time? And that's what it was like, oh shit. I was watching Pet Cemetery, Pet Cemetery 2, and of course in the Mouth of Madness, which is like my comfort movie. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So I watched that like a ton. Um I probably watch it at least four times a year. And there's a lot of that, I think, in in There's Something Wrong with the Children as well, because it's like one of my favorites. But uh, the one that really stuck out to me was definitely Pet Cemetery 2. Outside of like, you know, I'm sure I was watching some other evil kid movies just to make sure <laughs> that we're at least doing something different or if like I'm doing something the same that's in the script that like we can kind of play with it a little bit, right? Uh, a little bit more. And yeah, it made me remember Pet Cemetery 2. And I watched it again and was like, this fucking rules. This movie is so good. <laughs> And I feel like I understand why you guys might not have covered it because it's like, it's not really based on a, it's not really an adaptation. It's like a continuation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like a continuation and not, not really any sort of material that was like written by King. And, uh, he took and his it name doesn't follow any of the zero overlap with the characters or anything. Yeah. It's the same town, uh, same burial ground. And that's about it. But even that is like, it's not even like, where's the tree? That's not their house. That is not nope. the like same. That's not the Creed house. That's like some nope. other house. <laughs> yep. The house, the house has no, no bearing in it. As long as yeah. they're, as long as the pet cemetery is there, the deadfall and the Indian burial ground, then, uh, then that's all you need. Yeah. I also just love that this kind of focused on these like apathetic teens and like the world's <laughs> cruelest bully. On the planet, Dude. who's just like your mom's dead? <laughs> you know, like I'm gonna steal your kitten. Yeah, yeah. By the time he's breaking out like a dummy that's supposed to represent the mother at the graveyard on Halloween, yeah. you're like, like this is Christ like almighty. this is like Cartman on South Park, like tormenting Scott <laughs> fucking Peterman or whatever his name was by making him meet his parents. It's just yeah. so awful. The thing that's um, so wild to me is that also that it's just like. It does. This is the same director. It's Mary Lambert who did mm-hmm. both of them, and it feels like, I mean, it feels like completely different filmmakers. A hundred percent. Yes. The tones are are so different from from each other. I have to imagine, and this would be a good question for you as a filmmaker, like that that was the appeal for Mary Lambert, right? Where she's like, okay, I'll come back and do the sequel, but I don't. I want to do something completely different from what we did before. And, mm-hmm. and she does. And matter of fact, something that struck me on this rewatch is they kind of invert the story. It's not about a grieving parent trying to bring their kid back. It's a grieving kid trying to bring their parent back, mm-hmm. you know, totally. which, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm like, I've, I must've seen this movie half a dozen times and I never picked up on that before now, you know, I mean, obviously I recognize that as the plot of the movie, but I never recognize that as maybe a reaction to uh the first yeah. movie i also feel like you see you know the first one is so obviously grounded in grief 
and like this refusal of grief. Whereas the second one, like also she's like a, she, you know, she came from music videos and was like, she did like every Madonna video ever, probably not mm-hmm. ever, but like she did so many of the like landmark Madonna videos early on. And I feel like you can sense that like music video-ness of the second oh, yeah. one a little bit more where the oh, first one sure. feels a little more almost like, um, mannered you know straight drama this one is like just yeah surreal and weird and i heard her do a talk um ucla had like a screening that uh april wolf like moderated and she was talking Mm -hmm. about the difference between the first and the second one mary was and she had said it's like that thing where you are trying to recount a nightmare to someone. But when you mm-hmm. say that nightmare, like the secondhand version of that nightmare always sounds like ridiculous. And that's kind mm-hmm. of like the, the difference between the first one and the second one. So it doesn't feel the same. It's like the secondhand version of the nightmare just feels a little bit bonkers. And I was like, that's right. such a great way to describe this because it's also like you've got, you're going from like this two-year-old and having to like, suffer the death of your own child to like <laughs> your step your stepdad going hog wild and even on a production front I was like I'm sure on some level she was like I don't want to deal with like having to have these scenes with some sort of like puppet version or like is it really that scary having like the two like the kind of like Chucky mm-hmm. running around in the third act or like Clancy Brown like <laughs> coming at you big and hulking and like going crazy is a much, a much more menacing figure. Yeah, yeah. You just can lift up a motorcycle and use yeah. a, the tire to r- rip your face off if you. Yeah, to. maybe not <laughs> like psychologically. Do that. but maybe not psychologically is like difficult, but much more fun, I think, for the audience. <laughs> for sure, it's a it's a rowdy movie. It's you know what? Before we go much further, we should talk a little bit about the plot. Uh, mm. Usually, we ask our guests to describe the plot but i already put you through your paces on there's something about there's something wrong yeah. with the children i almost said there's something about the children like it was there's mary. something about mary's children yes um so i won't do that eric eric do you want to do the honors and, ex- mm. and explain the the plot of pet cemetery too? uh sure so this follows the t- young teenage son of a movie star who gets a, a she's like a horror star genre star who gets electrocuted in the opening scene uh and dies on the set and uh <laughs> he and his estranged well i guess not estranged I, he, they, they were going through a uh a difficult patch in their marriage his parents uh and they were in the process of patching that up when when the poor actress mom gets electrocuted on the cheesy gothic horror <laughs> set that she's on. Uh, and, and I do want to underline this because this is, it always fucking strikes me. And I remember seeing this movie in the theater. Um, I, and when the movie opens as a big fan of pet cemetery, the movie opens and there's like this lady in a gown going down this spiral stone staircase, holding like a, like a candle, you know, different light and shit. And it's like, what the fuck movie is this? And it's a movie within a movie kind of thing. Right. Um, so so she dies they go back to i guess her hometown i don't know i i I haven't ever picked up why they go to ludlow because they bury her in ludlow uh in in maine not in california and then they decide to stay hero she was like that's right yeah okay so got out they must have pre-bought her plot there when she was here or something so Mm -hmm. they bury her in ludlow 
Um, and Anthony Edwards from ER and Revenge of the Nerds plays the dad, who is a vet veterinarian, and he takes over uh, the local town vet practice. And then Edward Furlong from Terminator Two, and I think this is one of his follow-ups, if not the movie he made right after yeah, Terminator Two. He plays the kid, and he's having a rough go at it. You know, his his mom's dead. He's sad about that. He gets a nice little baby kitten, which is nice. But then he runs into the school bully. Everybody's bullying him. Uh, the kid who plays the bully, who we mentioned offhand, is Jared Rushton, who is the best Tom Hanks's best friend and big. And mm-hmm. like he was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He's always been like the 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 nice, you know, cool kid in in the movies. So here he's like wearing a fucking earring, and he's got like. 14 year old <laughs> stubble and shit you know he's trying to be super he's, he's got wearing, the earring you scarf. know he's the bad kid yeah he wears a scarf and that comes comes into play later uh be he edward furlong befriends the fat kid and uh and then the legacy of the town uh starts working its way into the story and uh and much like the first pet cemetery it starts with like an animal a pet dying and uh them burying them uh, it, at the pet cemetery, which apparently the entire town knows about, by the way, in this one, this one's <laughs> there, there is no Judd Crandall. Who's like the gatekeeping, you know, secret I do of this. Like, no, love everybody that. Knows this. I, I really yeah. love that about the story that it's become this kind of like urban legend. And it's only like a couple years later that like, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh yeah. The old creed play, you know, like it's, yeah. it's become this thing that There's... like the teens. And of course that's where they hang out to party as well like later on because that's yep. what you would do <laughs> fuck yeah it is could you imagine if you live near a a, a rumored to be actual pet cemetery like they you could bring people back to like i've been over there tipping tall boys all through what's high school weird is like i grew up okay so i did grow up like i said in like rural pennsylvania and that's what we did we didn't have a pet cemetery but like we would go out and have these like keggers in the woods and i think about it now and i'm like how did any of us fucking live but like it was such a weird thing to describe to people when I went to college, like in cities and they'd be like, you did what now? Like you drove down dirt roads in the middle of nowhere in the woods and then burned pallets and like drank in the woods while you guys were like 13 years old. And I was like, yes, yes, exactly. This is true. Mm-hmm. So it was like, Oh, I see my, uh, my teen experience reflected here. <laughs> yeah. You used to hang effigies of uh, dead parents. Uh, That's true. Uh, yeah, uh, of yeah, the other yeah, kids. Yeah. We in, used to terrorize all all children who had dead parents. Uh, that was the <laughs> you going used thing to, to be cool. Steal their cats and then claim that you uh, you killed them and and uh, and lock it's them so away dark. in the pet cemetery. It's so fucked up. Yeah. No, it's uh yeah we've talked about there's there's like wall to wall animal death there's like fucking rabbits that get their neck broken off you know I mean obviously that that was a, a stuffed thing they, like they don't kill this is, isn't Hannibal uh, cannibal holocaust I almost called it Hannibal Col- holocaust uh, <laughs> because apparently I'm dyslexic today um but uh, but yeah no there's like fucking the the fat kid's dog gets shot by Clancy Brown who's angry that it's like trying to get at the rabbits and. Fuck, there's like a fucking crate of kittens that gets, <laughs> you see the, the aftermath kittens. of them getting eaten. I it, laughed yeah. so hard. And I remember <laughs> seeing this for the first time too. And maybe that's like, man, I'm fucked up. But like, I remember seeing this for the first time, like way back when I was in my, I don't know, early 20s, like late teens or whatever. And 
the fact that they portrayed that with like a mom and her two like little daughters going back yeah. to adopt a kitten and then you reveal that it's just kitten massacre like and them uh-huh. screaming bloody murder i was cackling cackling you, at this scene do you think that that was a nod like them having like two teen or not teen uh two twin little girls in there do you think that why else would you put twins in the stephen king thing if you're not oh, going to be totally, like kind of nodding right? to not, it's not the only the shining, shining nod either i there's a there's a scene where clancy brown is chasing someone and comes through a doorway with a like a hammer instead of an axe but it's right. very the shining-esque in For that sure. moment mm-hmm. yep uh but the yeah, the the end of the the plot synopsis part, so we can <laughs> dive into this for real. Uh, I, I keep making detours in my own plots. This is why we don't uh, we aren't the ones that ever <laughs> to describe the plot because I'll yeah. keep I'll keep interrupting myself. Um, uh, so it starts with bearing the dog. The dog comes back. Uh, then of course it graduates to people, but they ver- for some fucking reason they decide to bury the abusive. Uh, cop fa- uh, stepfather of the fat kid, the one that shoots his dog, the one that's like, you know, trying to be the disciplinarian and whatnot. Uh, he gets his throat ripped out by the dog and they decide in their infinite wisdom, like, hey, what's what should we do? We should bury this angry <laughs> dude played by Clancy Brown in the pet cemetery. And probably the highlight of the movie for me is how Clancy Brown portrays the resurrected abusive uh stepfather Mm -hmm. because he kind of alternates between childlike glee at being back to like just serious threat and i mean he comes back he's like a rape he like he rapes his wife it's like it's it is it is fucking bonkers but at the same time he also seems to have a better relationship with his stepson i don't know it is like the kids wildest fucking decision the kids are like Oh, he's gotten better now that he's possessed and dead, like uh-huh. than he was before. Which I don't know what's saying about like this guy beforehand, but like I feel like he's in a Sam Raimi movie. Yeah, like on oh, yeah. his own. And honestly, I'm here for it. Yeah, and then it naturally goes from there to Edward Furlong deciding, you know, hey, my mom's buried here, and if Gus came back, then. Then why not, uh, you know, bury my mom with the help of Gus? Uh, apparently, um, they bury the mom in the pet cemetery. She comes back, and then there's a, a whole finale scene in the attic where she's trying to. You think she's trying to like win over her kid, and then that's not really what happens. It, it I, the, the whole ending is still very confusing to me. I don't know what their motivation is beyond just we are now undead evil things and we delight in torturing people, which you know granted is enough but that's uh uh that that's where it goes from there i think they're if i had to venture a guess i think they're pissed off about being alive again Mm. and not you know functioning properly you know their their wounds don't heal you know um i have i have a lot of questions about like gus continues to eat and i'm thinking like uh if you come back to life like this, you're basic, you know, you're like a high functioning zombie at this point. Right. Like, are you, do you really need to eat? And is your like digestive system even working at that point? I feel like he's dealing with like a, it's like a base needs type of thing, you know, because mm. it's like he's trying to eat. He has these like sexual urges. 
like he he's trying to do all these things that are kind of like mimicking actual human life in a way and there is a kind of interesting it's almost like a slow zombies versus fast zombies thing mm-hmm. where the first one like the original pet cemetery like they come back and they're just like kill everything yeah like almost immediately and in this one it's like there's weirdly a sense of like they're trying to live again but like i don't know it's a much goofier i think i'm gonna torture you it's back to the bully it's like i'm gonna torture you before i kill you type of thing that's happening in this one where there's like a lot more kind of like playing with your food almost happening yeah i also really love the like flipping of the sometimes dead is better Hmm. from the first one where it's said is kind of a warning to like this one where it's just you know mom maniacally laughing that through that line as her face melts off um (laughs) like almost like trying to convince them like join us right like it'll be better over here come on uh and it's just like taken in a such different light than than how it was used in the first one is this kind of refrain of like, don't do this, you know, like don't make right. this mistake. Whereas now it's coming from the actual dead saying it is, I don't know, it just tickles mm. me. I think that this movie is unfairly maligned. Um, anytime you bring up Pet Cemetery 2 to somebody, well, not anytime, but a lot of the time I notice that the reaction is like, oh, that, oh, that terrible sequel. But I I think it's a lot better than it gets credit for. And I know tonally it's sort of a mishmash. I think that, well, that's kind of my thesis and what I'm trying to say here. There's the the critics that, you know, tore this thing to pieces when it came out. And they did. Like, if you go pull up some quotes from reviews that were written at the time, they're particularly savage. I, I, I have to guess that it's the change in tone that... um, Could be... That, yeah, like that's you what pissed people ex- off, right? You go in expecting like this fine dining experience, and you're getting mm-hmm. like drive-in burgers and hot dogs. Like, I think there is that kind of mismatch of like you went in to see the wrong movie, so you reviewed it for the movie you wanted it to be, or the movie that you thought right. it was, versus the you didn't get on board the same train of like what this movie was and took it on the merits of what it was. I feel like it's totally ahead of its time because it just feels like it's so off the wall and the music is fucking great. And it's this grunge teens, just like apathetically shrugging through like every circumstance (laughs) is like my favorite genre in general. Mm -hmm. And even the whole like, okay, then they bring back evil stepdad. Why would you do that? And you, I get the sense of it's like, well, it's just kids being like, Oh shit, we're going to get in trouble. Right, right. What yeah, do? they say that, but, but it's like a dog rips his throat out. It's not like they accidentally can be blamed for that. You of know what course, I mean? But, but like you're but kind it's of kid logic. It's kid te- logic. I, I get teen it. logic. Like you're just like, oh shit! Like we gotta, we're gonna get in trouble for this somehow. Like it's like if uh, you know you're an even younger kid and someone hears you swear, like who's an adult? Right. You're like, oh no! Like your whole world's gonna crumble. So you don't know any right. better and just. The the apathy of Eddie Furlong throughout this whole movie is just like fucking chef's kiss to me. Because <laughs> it's, it's also, I, I got to say, like, you cannot be a current fan of movies like Malignant and Megan mm-hmm. if you don't like Pet Cemetery 2. Full stop. <laughs> I would agree with that. I would agree with that for yeah. sure. Yeah, I don't I don't love Pet Cemetery 2 as much as you two do. But, you know, I also 
totally agree with everything you're saying. Like to me, the, what makes the movie interesting at all is the fact that it's trying to do something different and wants to give you a different experience. And I'm all for sequels doing that. You know, that's probably why I like the last Jedi so much. And, you know, a lot of star Wars fans rejected it. Um, it's why, you know, I'm right now I'm still on an Island on love and thunder. I fucking love Thor and love and thunder. Almost everybody else in the world hates it for the exact same reason that we've been talking about. You know, they always state, you know, that uh, the reason they don't like it is they don't like how it whips back and forth between tones, you know, where it can be super serious with the Christian Bale stuff uh, and then super silly with like the screaming goats and whatnot. And, um, and they don't like that. And I, I understand, but like that, I, I love movies that, that dare to try to, you know, give you whiplash with, with, uh, with tones like that. So. I feel like that's kind of the interesting thing when I see like just reviews in general that it's usually if it's a strong reaction to anything, it's the reason that someone loves something something is the reason like another reviewer will absolutely hate Mm. it and they will call out all the exact same things as the problem or hold them up (laughs) as like the shining beacon of what makes the movie great. Uh, That's always been fascinating to me that it's I think as a filmmaker, it's always better to have a strong reaction than a middling reaction because like right. if you just mm-hmm. get like an eh, then you're like oh i fucked up <laughs> right is that the philosophy behind you tweeting out negative reviews for there's something wrong with the children because i saw you do that the other day and i was like that's interesting I, i've always done that from like the get-go um and i think it comes from again starting in anthologies and like the first thing I directed was Southbound. So it was my real first experience of that. But it was again with this like group of other filmmakers. And we had this very like, this is our taste kind of like if nobody else likes our taste, that's their problem Um, kind of thing. And I feel like you do have to have that a bit as a filmmaker because you have to trust in your own taste because if you don't, then you're just going to get washed away in the midst of like notes and the compromise train leaves the station. As soon as you start making a movie, like you're fighting against the mean of mediocrity that Mm -hmm. is rushed at you through like the budget cuts or the time cuts or the what have you or the notes you're you're always fighting to keep it as close to the original thing that you wanted to make and hope that that gets as much of that across as possible so I think early on there were very it's that thing of very divisive reviews for Southbound that people either like loved it or hated it and (laughs) was one I think someone, it might have even been on like the VHS too, that they called it a cavalcade of ugliness and said that none of us should ever <laughs> be allowed to make films ever again. And to this day, like I'll still, t- I'll still like text everyone's well, like Simon or like Matt and be like cavalcade of ugliness. And like, that's it. <laughs> and, like, you know, Cause it's just like such a great fucking phrase. Um, but I also think that like everyone's entitled to their opinion. And once you put something out into the world, you cannot control how people interpret it, whether it's like, like I said, if I see how the mental health is handled in the movie, like as a flip of the trope or that it's pointing at it specifically as being silly, like another person might just read it as completely sincere and be like upset by that. Or like, you know, I've, I've seen reviews already where it's like, there's too much explained. Um, and other reviews where it's like, there's nothing explained. In both cases, like, especially the one who was like, there's too much explained. My producer and I were sitting here and we're like, should we email them and ask them what happened? Because, like, like, there's no explanation. I want to know what they took. I want to know what they took from it. 
Um, so one, I think all one of I those saw... opinions are valid. So that's that's why I tweet all of them is that they're all valid. Have, there was making one... anything at all that people feel that they want to engage with your quote unquote art. I feel like such a pretentious twat saying that, but like anyone who wants to engage with anything you make is already like you're in such a position of gratitude, in my opinion, that it's like, wow, you watched a thing I made. Holy shit. I'm mm -hmm. still there. Yeah, there was um, one of the, I mean, the, the review I saw that you linked to was saying that like there wasn't enough uh, development, like character development. And I was like, what I died. The fuck? I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like the, 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 um, you know, the conflicts that exist between those four adult characters are pretty fascinating. I thought, and like, I, I thought um, they were, they were modern, you know, they were, uh, they felt real to me. It wasn't just like, Oh, we don't like each other anymore. Like there's shit going on there, you know, and it, it and it affects the other couple, you know, and vice versa. Like I was I was blown the fuck away by that and was like, oh, man, awesome. do people people just watch movies differently than I do, apparently. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we've I talked wonder about it. sometimes. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say we've talked on the show before about there being a widespread media literacy problem right mm -hmm. now. And I, I just got to chalk it up to that. Like, it just doesn't. It doesn't think, track to me. I think you're also giving giving people who say that kind of thing a little bit more credit in that they were fully paying attention and didn't interpret it right. I I just think it's a problem with people who are watching shit at home. I honestly do. I think it's a distracted viewing problem a lot of times when you run into people who who say stuff like that where it's just like, when I hear that, what I think is like, okay, they were checking their email, they were on Instagram, they were looking up at times, and they looked up for all the all the exciting stuff, right? And not yeah. not because the, the first half of the movie is nothing but character development. I mean, oh my god, I know. So, which so, yeah. other reviewers have pointed out, like, oh, it's like you know, an act and a half of just like talking, and then like the horror movie starts, and I'm like, yes, yes, exactly. Well, then you That's then the you care about the story. You, then you care about the characters, fucking don't right. you? Yeah. <laughs> I also feel like I am very heavily in like I, I feel like I am very tuned into people's micro expressions even more so than like I, and I don't know if that comes from I don't know some weird childhood shit or what but like I, I'm very tuned into people's like micro expressions and little looks and glances and how much that changes what you're saying and what you're saying is not what you mean and, and that kind of thing in the subtext and I really, really try to capture those little moments, especially with like the kids messing with Ben. And I feel like if you weren't fully paying attention and you weren't, if you're just listening to the dialogue and you're not really watching these actors as you're, you know, doing whatever else, then you could miss a lot of that subtext and a lot of the stuff that's going on just with their fucking, mm. what I feel like are very nuanced performances underneath all this dialogue. Right. Agreed. Well, 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 it's mid-roll time once again, and I have to say one word to you, Scott. Is it microdosing? That's right. It's our favorite word, microdosing. That means it's time to talk a little bit more about Lumi Labs. You've heard us talk about them before. You're going to hear us talk about them again. Uh, I don't think that we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. I think... Uh, 
you guys must love this stuff because uh, Lumi Labs is, is constantly getting ad space with us. So that means you guys are doing your job and clicking through, buying, trying this out, and knowing that we are 100% right, not bullshitting you when we tell you that they're THC gummies are a godsend. So mm-hmm. I've talked about this many times before. I'll talk about it many times again. I have trouble sleeping. I have trouble maintaining regular, normal human hours. My circadian rhythm's all out of whack. And these Lumi gummies, they help me get to sleep. You're mellow. You're enjoying your day. You're calm. Uh, you know, that's kind of the whole point of all this stuff. It's not It's not about getting blitz. It's about maintaining a, I don't know, a comfortable yeah. medium, would you say, Scott? Yeah, it, it, it kind of dulls the edge of the screaming pain of being alive. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so, you know, the, as we said, this this product is aimed at helping you relax and it works. I can attest to that. The best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. That's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Excellent work. Now, uh, our next ad read is actually one that's been brought to us. Uh, We will not be reading it, but uh, I'm here to introduce it. So please stand by for a very special message from Penguin Random House and horror author slash former KingCast guest, Mr. Grady Hendrix. Hello, I'm Grady Hendrix, author of books like My Best Friend's Exorcism, and the Final Girl Support Group. And on January 17th, my new book, How to Sell a Haunted House, will be coming to a bookstore near you. It's the story of an adult brother and sister who have to overcome their lifelong hatred of one another so that they can clean out their childhood home and put it on the market after their parents pass away. The house is, of course, haunted. My publisher's legal department requires me at this point to mention that this book contains cursed puppets and haunted dolls, Reading this book may cause nausea, sleeplessness, dry mouth, night terrors, night sweats, uncontrollable urination, and the feeling that there may be puppets hiding underneath your bed. Readers who have been attacked by a puppet or doll are advised not to read this book or to read it only under the supervision of a medical professional. If you read this book and experience the unshakable feeling that dolls are sneaking up on you, that the dolls in your house are alive, that dolls are inside the walls, scratching on the walls, trying to get out of the walls, trying to get to you, that the people around you are actually dolls, that they want to take you and turn you into a doll also, then we suggest you seek the services of a certified doll exorcist immediately. Happy reading. Thank you, Grady. And with all of that said, let's get back to the show. To bring it back to Pet Cemetery 2, I would like to tell you now about what may be my new favorite scene in this movie after this, <laughs> this recent rewatch. Um, and it's at the very, very, very end of the movie. Uh, the, the kid and his dad, you know, Edward Furlong and um, uh, Anthony Edwards getting his little pet van and are leaving. And um, there's like a line of dialogue about the people who died or something. And then you get a series of like still <laughs> images of uh-huh. the various me- like almost in, like in an ovals. in memoriam in set. ovals, by the way. Over yeah. The, yeah. With a soft fade on the edge. It's like uh, a Hunger Games, like who died today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the in memoriam segment at the Oscars or something. <laughs> yeah. right? And who can forget Sheriff Gus Gilbert or whatever his name was, yeah. you know, like it's, it, uh, we had fun together, didn't we? Yes. It's such, it's such a weird move. And like, you know, uh, 
we've reached out and tried to get uh, Mary Lambert on this show a couple times. I don't I don't think she's she doesn't seem very receptive to it. Um, maybe she's just tired of talking about this shit. I don't know. But uh, if we ever get Mary Lambert on the show, the first question I'm asking is like, tell me about the last scene in Pet Cemetery too. Like it's such it's such a an outside the box choice. I'm I'm mm-hmm. very very intensely curious like what the thinking was there. And the best I got is that it's more of the uh, you know that that sort of goofy tone that underlines the whole thing. I think it's I think it's done knowingly. I don't think we're yeah. supposed to take that seriously. It's interesting because it's like there's this this is why I'm always like I it feels like it's almost two different directors, but in a way it's like it shows that she is sort of a master of tone because the first one almost has this like Lynchian visuals of like, you know, Gage and that like what is that little outfit he's wearing with his little cane? <laughs> right. You know, like like if you saw that in a Lynch movie, you'd be like, I'm on board. But, you know, sometimes people see it in Pet Cemetery and they're like, what the fuck? Yeah, if he was in in the Red Room, he would fit right in Yeah, exactly. And like then the the performances in the first one, too, I don't want to say stilted, but they're very subdued and almost, you know, I don't know if it's like a classy versus trashy thing, whereas it's kind of grounded. That one's considered the classier one where, yeah, much more subdued. And then in this one, it's just like over the top and like I gotta say between the two I will take trashy over classy any fucking day (laughs) and that's just me like Clancy Brown pulling up next to the car on you know when his stepson and wife are trying to get away and just having that like (laughs) fucking crazy smile like it's this is you you can't this doesn't happen by accident like these are tonal choices that are like very specifically made and he's just like going full Nick Cage in this movie and I I really don't think people appreciate that enough. Also just the weirdness like uh, as a side note of like Anthony Edwards you know just losing his wife and they're maybe we're gonna get back together and they were dealing with all this stuff and then the housekeeper shows up and he's like (laughs) oh hey what's up and it's like a housekeeper who, by the way, looks like a younger, like the younger model of, yes, totally. <laughs> of his wife, too. So, yeah, totally. she is. I mean, that whole she is there purely as a red shirt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she is yeah. there purely to just get killed at some point because there's it doesn't really add anything to the plot of the movie. And it is, you know, kind of weird, as you've already pointed out. She just walks in and starts fondling his dead wife's dress. And he's like, all right, let's see about this now. Like, yeah. uh-huh. he's dead yeah. that's not going anywhere no 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 son's crying over spilt milk and like <laughs> hops right into that shit can it's can i ask phenomenal can i ask you guys a question uh about this movie who's the main character edward clancy Furlong. brown it, the main character is drew gilbert the fat kid edward furlong is jeff matthews Anthony Edwards as Chase Matthews and Gus Gilbert as Clancy or Clancy Brown as Gus Gilbert. That uh, there, I, this another thing that struck me: you don't follow Edward Furlong. He's the guy on the poster. He's the kid on True. the poster. True, but he's not. I think Drew Gilbert gets the fat kid gets more screen time. He like, really you does. Follow, you follow him more, and his family life is more of the central story here than than Anthony Edwards and Ed, Edward Furlong. I. We should just combine the names since they they share an Edward in there, so it's going to be Anthony Edwards Furlong now. <laughs> um, uh, but I like we. It does feel like they took two opposing ideas or two opposing story 
lines or maybe they had you know they pitched in in the writing i guess is before like writing rooms were typical but like they pitched two different ideas where it's like this kid and his vet dad you know showing up in the town or also this this kid and his is uh the problems he has with the stepdad like you know it, it's really odd the structure of this movie and who it focuses on um it, it's really hard for me to to pick like a central character and it's even harder when you know spoiler alert obviously uh even though we've already talked about the end of this fucking movie so sorry uh if you haven't seen it but you know especially since they kill drew you know just kind of you know right at the you know beginning of the last act you know that drew and his his mom die in a car accident where he's kind of ostensibly been the main character that might be symptomatic of you know the fact that Mary Lambert, uh, when they they approached her to to do a sequel, wanted uh, it to be a direct sequel to the first one and mm-hmm. Ellie uh, Creed to be the main character. Mm. And then um, Paramount uh, Paramount apparently uh, wasn't wasn't too hot on the idea of having a a teenage girl be the lead of this movie. So yeah, she ooh, went back right? and re- grumble, grumble, grumble. Fucking insane. <laughs> Yeah, like, so she went back and rewrote the whole thing, and, you know, uh, it's just all new characters with a couple of nods to the original. Yeah. Um, I wonder if Edward Furlong then was, like, kind of foisted upon her. Like, no, you have to, he has to be the the star because he's the hottest, you know, he's in the biggest movie of the year and whatnot. And maybe that's why she sidelined him a little bit and kind of focused on this other kid who honestly is kind of a better actor, you know, I... Hate to throw some shade on Edward Furlong, but uh, I think uh, Jason McGuire, who plays Drew, is kind of run circles around him a little bit in this movie. He does on the. I feel like you're you're hitting kind of a nail on the head here that like Drew Gilbert's character is a little bit more of like the heart of the movie. Like right. we have empathy for him, and where Eddie Furlong is a bit more of like kind of just the cookie cutter apathetic teen, and his friend is like the one that we we kind of connect more to, and the meat of the story does sit with him. And then once you get once he's gone, it goes back to the third act. It's like, oh right, Eddie's thing with his mom. That's right, forgot about that. But like, what right. I wouldn't give for this to have been like, especially it's you know this is like a ninety two ish like early nineties thing. Yeah, for like the Jane and Daria version, <laughs> rather than like these two dudes like dealing right. with like Pet Cemetery. Like, can I pitch that now? Like, okay. that's you the version kid, yeah. I want. <laughs> yeah, Daria or Ghost World version mm-hmm. of, of Pet Cemetery. Oh, the for Ghost sure. World version of Pet Cemetery. Yes, <laughs> that that that'd be fucking rad. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, that thing, Scott, about how she wanted it to be Ellie. So. That uh, the bully has this whole campfire thing that he says around Halloween, right? They're in the mm-hmm. Pet Cemetery, and he tells the story of of uh, of the Creed family, and he continues the story past what we've seen in the movie, where right. he says that then Ellie went crazy and hacked her grandparents up with a hatchet, and then went to an insane asylum, and then she broke out. She might be here today. Do you think, in their mind, do you think that that was just the add on, like? legend to just try to make the campfire tale spooky or do you think that like that that is mary lambert was trojan horsing the plot <laughs> of her like what her plot. sequel would have been into that yeah. scene well you could you, read well, it yeah, either you, way honestly i mean yeah, yeah. I'm curious only about she that. would only she would be able to answer that uh but i think it's more likely that that's the case that that's her kind of tipping her hand to what it could have been 
Mm-hmm. Um, because when he's telling that story, he's like clearly uh, exaggerating it. Like, right. and then he found his son and maggots were pouring out of his eyes. Right. You know, like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we can take the embellishments. We can't take the embellishments on that story at face value. So I For think, sure. you know, the but the basics of it are probably probably correct. Hmm. It's as good a guess as any is what the sequel would have hmm. been about with Ellie as yeah. the, uh, the lead character. Um, Roxanne, let me ask you this. What did you think about the uh, the Pet Cemetery remake that flipped the roles for for Ellie and Gage? Oh, I love Kevin and Dennis. They're they're mm-hmm. close personal friends. So that's, you know, like I kind of love what they did with that because I think it's that same thing of what I was saying where it's it's much more fun to have Gus Gilbert being our character, the stepdad who is like our main, mm-hmm. you know, antagonist mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise you're just kind of dealing with Chucky. Um, yeah. I feel like that was really smart of them to go with the older character. Also, it's like such a good misdirect in their version that you, of course you think it's going to be Gage. Of course you do. And then when it's not, it's like, oh shit. And Inle- her being just that bit older gave her so much more character. And some mm-hmm. of the shit they do with her after that, I feel like lives more in this Pet Cemetery 2 version of it being like, She's not just back and kill, kill, kill. It's like she's trying to grapple with what's happening almost. And I think of like the, I, just the sound of the hairbrush in the bathtub when he's like brushing her hair and runs into the mm. staples, like yeah, gives me goosebumps because it's such a sick, like perfect kind of encapsulation of that. I just think she's such a, a fun, a fun character to have in their third act. Mm. And like that, the little girl who, what was her name? Jati? I'm oh, I not know. sure if that's actress? pronounced right. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure of the actress's name. It's Jati something, but she she's so good in that role. Like, I thought that was a really fun choice that they made. I don't know how, I agree. how did that go over, though. I agree that it's a fun choice, but I think that they shot themselves in the foot. And I don't mean the filmmakers. I mean the studio here, and specifically the marketing department, in putting that reveal in the trailer. Like, if that had happened in the oh, movie, shit. like... Like, if you were watching that in the theater, it would have been a big surprise and, like, would have... Yeah. You know, the the big complaint about the new Pet Cemetery is that it didn't do enough different from the original, right? And I think that that perception may not have existed if they hadn't, you know, made it clear what the big twist was right. in the goddamn trailer if, for the movie. I would imagine it be those a surprise. two guys are really yeah. annoyed with yeah, that. I'm a trailer avoider, so I mm, didn't. Uh, I honestly didn't know at the time that that had been because I saw it when it premiered here in LA, and I was like, "What?" Like I was oh, the one in the, yeah. the theater screaming, "Like, oh no!" Yeah, like <laughs> yep, that yeah. was. I was probably the one who that was a big reveal for. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I am a marketing marketing uh, uh, test subject of one, saying like that was a, <laughs> that felt like a huge change to me because I didn't see any of that kind of pre advertisement that gave yeah. that away. Yeah, I I talked to them because uh, that had a premiere here in Austin as well. They did a South by Southwest screening and. And I talked to them after that, and uh, and they were, and I of course brought up the trailer. They're just like, "Yeah, what can you do? We didn't, you know, that's what the studio wanted to do. We didn't agree with it, but they didn't agree with us." So that's you know, funny. Like you, you know, you could tell, you could tell that they were bummed out about it. The trailer for mine, for for you know, there's something wrong with the children. Also gives a shit ton away, but like yeah. 
to me, like you see the title of the movie and if you don't already know what's about to happen in the movie, then like, <laughs> I don't think the trailer is really going to make much of a difference. <laughs> yeah. But what, if there's something, but what if there's something right about the children though? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> mm. No, I, that has never crossed my mind. <laughs> I'm curious if you have, and I'm not going to ask you to explain it if you do, but do you have a, like a headcanon? history of like what what that hole in the ground is what the fort is all that oh yeah 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 i have pages and pages of that really that's interesting mm-hmm. it's all will be explained in the prequel <laughs> there's about yeah. to be something wrong with the children <laughs> I, uh, before there yeah. was something wrong with the children when we made Southbound, me and, me and the rest of the gang, we talked about this a lot when we were writing the script of like, how much do you need to understand what's happening? And what we kind of came to is that we need to understand what's happening. How much of that we explain is really not as important as that like the rules are followed within what we're establishing, whether it's totally explained or not. So it's the same thing for Southbound. There's like, 30 pages of mythology and like exactly what's happening and why and who ends up stuck there and who doesn't and who gets out or do they or not um, and what the reapers are and how those are born. And the whole thing is like laid out layer upon layer upon layer, but like that's not really explained in the movie. It's kind of like you have to know that so that you can really kind of ground your actors, I think, sometimes with what's going on. And also so that you know, so that you're not contradicting your own mythology at any point with any of the decisions you're making once you get rolling and you've slept three hours for like three weeks straight. Good answer. And I I really respect a, a filmmaker that's willing to willing to do the work, but also not necessarily put it all on screen in terms of the lore that they've created. You know, I, I love a movie where I, it's like, I get to do a little homework afterwards and, and sort of decide what I think each thing means. You know, one of the things I like is that people take their own interpretations from things and, and see it either as like a thematic metaphor or like a concrete, no, this is what, what happened. Like, I hope people are arguing about the movie when they come out of the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. if it just like, is like, here it is, then it's like, that's just my interpretation of what scares me versus like you bringing your own experience to it and like building in like what your own fears and anxieties are that you're reading out of it. You know, everyone has their kind of Mm -hmm. own experience of that with horror. And that's kind of like what draws me to horror in general is just that it's this kind of uniting thing of like realizing like, Oh, the weird anxieties that I have around these issues, other people have as well. And that's like, makes me feel less like a weird gremlin in a closet, like living on my own <laughs> in my head, you know, Eric, do you have anything further you'd like to discuss in terms of pet cemetery too? I do actually. And, and there's something that we, we glanced on earlier and that was talking about Mary Lambert's, uh, music video origins and how it Mm -hmm. uh, translates here where you don't really get that sense in the first one. Uh, And here the dream sequences that, that she does. Yeah. You like, I wasn't aware that she did all of the, the, uh, the iconic Madonna videos, but once you said that, like the dream sequences remind me of the, uh, of the Madonna. 
<laughs> yeah, and and so there's two notable ones in this movie. One is Edward Furlong has a nightmare that his mom is there in the room with him and she has the dog head, right? And it's one, it looks fake as fuck and creepy as shit at the same time, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, human body, dog head. And then the dad has a, a sexy dream where he's having having the sexy time with his now dead wife, who then also has a dog head, which becomes extremely, uh, again, fake and creepy. Uh, and, but the way that they sh- she shoots those, they're like heavy blue filters, mm-hmm. you know, very music video-esque. So since you pointed that part out, I, I figured, you know, highlighting those scenes and talking about like your reactions to it, you know, both uh, Scott and Roxanne, like your, your um, reaction within the context of the movie. I have kind of a nerdy theory about this that mm. doesn't have as much to do with the visuals, but more about why they have a dog head. Go mm. on. Um, so when we're seeing in Pet Cemetery those same kind of flashes, like when the mom sees her sister in the corner and it's in the blue mm. dress, and then we see Gage, and it's like, oh, it's Gage making her see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, you know, at least human. Now in this one, we have the dog who is almost sending them these visions. And of course, the dog is like trying to do his best. <laughs> of like making these like about their subconscious but doesn't quite get it all the way there so that's why he has a dog head <laughs> this is my theory wait a minute so you think the dog is is, is causing the sexy nightmare for yes. the dad yeah they, they, like they're you know trying to play into these fears or whatever and uh, like it just doesn't make it all the way there because it's the transference of like this pet bringing this evil nightmare thing to this person versus it being like the child. So it's like the, the vessel is not, the vessel is not advanced enough for whatever evil entity it is to like completely make it through into the conscious. So it's pulling some of the subconscious in as well. Mm. That's I like my this theory. bizarro theory. <laughs> I like the theory. I think it gets somewhat troubling once you get to the sex scene version of it. Fair. It's a, okay. That's a little fair. more, a, a little more palatable. Coming from. Yeah, yeah. The the, the, you, the sex scene felt like it felt like one of those. It felt like a scene where the studio was like, "We got to get some tits in here, guys." I'm telling you, the horror crowd's yeah. gonna need those titties, you know, because <laughs> it, it, it's so like it's really extraneous. But uh, also, I I enjoyed both of those scenes. I like it. It's all part <laughs> of the. It's all part yeah. of the. Uh, well, I've seen boobs before. You know, we're we're pretty far past the point where seeing boobs is a unique experience for me, but. Um, I, 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 it adds to the, the overall goofy flavor of the thing. And yeah, it kind of, this kind of brings out tales from the cryptish. Yeah. Yeah. It, it bring and it, and this, you know, train of thought you've led me down brings me to another thought I had while I was watching it, um, this morning that this, this movie was on HBO like all the time when I was a kid. And uh, like like Sleepwalkers, this is a movie that when I was a kid, I didn't think was very good. And then when I got much older, I found a lot more to appreciate about it. And um, I remember they used to run these like promos for it on HBO where it was the scene with Clancy Brown and the drill, you know, and he's Mm -hmm. like, no brain, no pain. Or maybe that was in the trailer or something. But Uh in that scene, there's like blue filter in the background. And then there's like you know, a fire or something up close. So it's like red and blue. It looks like, you know, not jello lighting or anything, but like it's 
like creep show Stylistic. lighting. Yeah. Yeah, 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 comic book, a little bit comic yeah. book lighting, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, I was thinking as I was watching it today, like there's actually a very minimal amount of that in here. It's just in the dream sequences and and kind of in that scene where uh, Gus attacks Anthony Edwards' character in um, mm-hmm. in the house. But when I think of Pet Cemetery, I think of that colors or pet cemetery too i think of that color scheme mm. even though it's incorrect and watching it today i was like 90 percent of this movie is just you know pretty straight up and realistic um yeah it's it's a weird misconception in my brain that i can't seem to un- unwire or untangle when i think of like pet c- cemetery in general i always think of like the backlit fog and the blue light coming through like the branches and that's mm-hmm. that's like what part of the title once or like it's not something that reoccurs but like most of the time that you see that it's in daylight one or if it's at night it's just naturalistic nighttime lighting but like that in my head is what I think when I think pet cemetery so it's it's interesting Mm. kind of like that that's what you know your brain kind of sears onto these this imagery and then flavors your color like of the whole movie it's weird how that works The scene that I think about is the is the motorcycle death scene, which is very <laughs> fall yeah. feeling, right? Because they're kind of in on the roadside, but also kind of in the woods, and it's like overcast, and there's like lots of dead trees looking around, you know, dead bushes and and brown grass and stuff, you know. So that for whatever reason, that's the predominant flavor. When I think of Pet Cemetery Two, I think of that that moment with. Uh, uh, with Clancy Brown using the motorcycle wheel to <laughs> rip that bully's face off. That messed me up as a kid. It really yeah. did. Like that scene like really fucked me up. I had such a dis- bizarre terror of like any article of clothing I had after that getting stuck <laughs> yes. in, my bike, in my bike tires. Dude, dude, I had, maybe this is the reason why that scene had such a big impact on me is because when I was a kid, my grandpa would always take me out uh, riding bikes and he had like, we had uh, our own bikes. And then he also had one of those like bikes for two, like you see in the Muppets or whatever Uh the fuck they existed in real life. But we'd, we'd ride that out together. And every single time he would give me, uh, and he would use it too a Velcro strap that he would wrap around your pant leg uh, on the side where the chain was. So the pant leg never got caught in the chain. And so that just became, that just became uh, a thing whenever I was riding a bike with him, not not at home or whatever, but with him, we would have this fucking Velcro strap that we would put around our pant leg so it didn't get caught in the chain. And maybe that in my mind was like, ooh, safety, 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 keep keep the thing away from the chain. And then you see the scene, you know, and I saw this movie in the theater. So I saw it when I was, uh, you know, this came out in 92, so I was 11. I saw it when I was 11 and uh, that was right around the time, you know, that I was always riding bikes and shit with my grandpa. So uh, maybe the scarf getting caught up in the, into the spokes and, you know, kind of triggered that like safety hmm. danger thing in my mind. Just such a great bully comeuppance too for like right. how yeah. awful he is through the whole movie. It yeah. is interesting yeah. how kind of like, He's almost like a, a familiar for Eddie Furlong and like bringing ultimately his mother back, you know, uh-huh. like he keeps kind of like helping him out through the whole thing. It's like they've got this weird buddy <laughs> comedy thing going on in the whole back half of the movie. Yeah. The the fact that the bully is such a prick and is like so over the top with the bullying kind of allows the the death with the motorcycle to exist. 
because it yeah. might be a little too much if he was just like, you know, he tripped this kid at school a couple of times. You know, <laughs> right. no, he did like way worse shit than that. You know, so you're kind of cheering for it. By the time Clancy Brown is like ripping his face off with the fucking motorcycle wheel. Yep. Uh, it is also like I the- feel like we see a lot of like you know teen slasher is such a big genre, but like these guys are like thirteen years old, like twelve and thirteen mm-hmm. years old. It looks like, and I do kind of love that that it's like you've got these twelve and th- this is fucked up, but like you've got these twelve and thirteen year olds like out hanging out in the woods, like drinking beers on Halloween, and like right. you know also just getting killed left and right, and it's like a very I don't know. I feel like it's more realistic and it's it's less safe then that's typically played now where it's like we only see that as like people who are like 22 year olds playing like <laughs> college you know mm-hmm. or a, a high school seniors or what have you and it's like right. oh this is actually what like teenage life was really like maybe this is just my fucked up teenage life but like mm. it felt like a much more realistic portrayal at the time uh that it was like actually kids who were like 14 13 years old yeah right that's Which a, is the most Stephen King thing about this movie, by the way. Totally. Like, I don't feel I don't feel a lot of Stephen King's DNA in this. Like he's all over, of course, of course, the original Pet Cemetery remake yeah. or the original Pet Cemetery adaptation. I mean, but um, but yeah, there's very little in here that strikes me as Stephen King esque in the world building and the lore and the characters. But you're right; that is probably the most Stephen King thing in in this uh, uh, sequel is the fact that it does kind of focus on legit. 13 14 year olds in danger yeah yeah totally he did it's a little earlier than i was drinking out in the woods uh at, i not at 13 but a few years later but also i've been to maine um i can imagine getting started a little <laughs> earlier there's not there's not a terrible amount of things to do up there i or, or i don't think there would be if uh you were growing up there as a teenager. Very picturesque, guess, beautiful place, but you know. I guess I was also I was also a sophomore when I was thirteen, so that might have something to do with it. Like if you just in think of it in terms of like high school, yeah, ages. I was I was a sophomore. Did you skip so. a grade or like what? what no, was going I on there? started I started kindergarten when I was had like just turned four. Huh. Yeah, it's been all downhill since. I was like this child prodigy for like <laughs> six years, and then it just was crash and burn from there. Yeah. Well, you're doing pretty good now. Yeah. You're making it took uh, me good like movies. Seven years to get like an undergrad, like creative writing degree. So uh, <laughs> you know, I made up for it later. In the back end. Yeah. <laughs> so you evened out, is what you're saying. Yeah, it all um, evened out. The last thing that I want to bring up before we we bring the Pet Cemetery 2 conversation to a close was how disappointing is it that the movie opens with a a <laughs> a burial in the, and I, I believe it's at the same cemetery that we saw before and the preacher uh isn't Stephen King. Truly. Like, yeah. How did yeah. You, in in the the guy that they got kind of sounds like he's doing the main accent. He sounds like he's doing King. You never really get a good close up. He's like an older guy with a big white beard. Uh, but the preacher should have been King. Like, uh, come on. Like, was he was he just not interested when well, it wasn't his I guess, book? Was he so uninvolved with like this script and this production at that point, mm-hmm. even that he was like, nah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this and and this kind of brings up from a you know sideways brings up like. A thing I did want to talk about was him taking his name off the movie. Like I, I pulled up an article this morning from uh, 
the LA Times from like 92. And it was him and the lawyers behind the lawnmower man kind of trading hits back and forth with this through this reporter. Um, and they mentioned within that article that he's he's also taken his name off of uh, the upcoming Pet Cemetery too. And I think that interesting. It, it's maybe maybe it's one. Uh, the lawnmower man thing pissed him off so much that he was just like, I'm not fucking around with any of this right now. So, yeah. Uh. And, and two, I also think it's possible that pet cemetery was a very personal novel to him, you know? And it was a thing that at a certain point he didn't even think he'd publish because it was too dark. And so I can imagine him being like, no, this is a special one. You don't need a sequel to this. And then they're like, "Mm, okay, but we're within our rights to do one. So we're going to do one. Mm. And him just being like, all right, fine. Then, you know, just leave my name off of it. Mm. Um, yeah, it is a weird thing of like, I I do feel kind of weird coming on to the King cast to defend a movie that he has removed his name from. <laughs> but it is that kind of question of like, is it because he was like, I am uh, offended by this in some way? Or is it like him seeing the script and seeing the movie and just being like, there's really nothing of my own story within this Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be affiliated it with it just out of a sense of like, this is not my writing. This is not one of my stories. And I don't want it to feel like I'm claiming it in some way. It's an interesting hmm. question. I don't know if, has, if he's ever talked about it. But it also feels weird I, just because like, I just got that crazy quote from my movie from him and then come on and I be like, know. so let's talk about the thing he didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How fucking mind boggling must that have been? Like, were you? What's the quote? Tell tell people tell the the people what the quote was. No, I can't. I feel I'm like too like. I'll do it. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it. I feel too shilly to like. I just to do it myself. But feel I free. It... Feel free. Somebody sent it to me. Oh, Luke sent it to me. All right. Yeah. Uh, the quote is: "There's something wrong with the children." Is like the omen crossed with "Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf?" It's scary and totally engrossing. Stephen King. So did you know that he had access to a screener of this thing? Like, did you even know that this was a possibility that he might blurb it? Well, I had asked Blumhouse to send it to him because he's really? such... Yeah, I asked them because he's such a... I feel like he's such a supporter of, like, up-and-coming writers and of, yeah. of like, oh, just yeah. the horror genre in general. And, like, I see him tweeting about kind of smaller movies and it's it's weird for me to say Blumhouse movie and smaller movie but like you know this is for this is not part of their theatrical division this is still made for like the streaming side for their through their television division which is a completely different production pipeline you right. know mm-hmm. the budgets are way way smaller uh, they don't get the same amount of coverage they don't get the same amount of press and I was like it would be cool if he even saw this you know and wrote back thumbs up or what have you and wasn't even thinking of about it in terms of like, oh, could we get some sort of quote from him? But just like, oh, if he tweeted about it, that would be cool, you know? Right. And yeah. just never thought about it again. And then my producer called me up, you know, and this was like a week ago or whatever, and was like, oh my God, Stephen King. And my stomach dropped. And I was like, oh no. Because I immediately thought like the worst. You know, like, which is Stephen King's dead. And I was like, what? Oh. He's like, no. He's like, haven't you seen the email? And I'm like, what email? What are you talking about? And so then he read it to me, and then I also died. Um, <laughs> because not only had he seen it, 
which already is like, holy shit. But he, right. you know, wrote back to Jason Blum about it and and was very complimentary. And like he said a lot more stuff in the email and it like really like brought me to like tears because it's just, you know, having grown up in the middle of the fucking woods in Pennsylvania, like on his work, like growing up on his work, he's one of the reasons that I'm like in this genre. He's one of the reasons I wanted to be a writer. He's one of the reasons that like I'm here at all. So he he gave me a sense of like, there's other worlds out there when I grew up in a place where there weren't. Mm-hmm. So it meant a lot. No, I, I can imagine tell. that. It's, yeah. you know, when that sort of thing has happened, I know it's happened to me and I'm sure it's happened to Eric uh, in a line of work that we used to do, like being film journalists and stuff. Sometimes you meet somebody that, is you know someone that's like been a hero of yours forever and they have something nice to say about something you've done or compliment you on this that or the other thing while you're speaking to them and it carries so much fucking weight if you are even remotely a a creatively minded person and someone whose artwork uh always you know inspired you if they reflect that back at you it, it feels like nothing else you know you could have if it were me and I had I made a movie and it had like 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, like I'd be thrilled with that. But then if Stephen King came out of the fucking woodwork to be like, yo, this movie, this movie rules and, you know, everything he said in that quote, I I would just be beside myself. So I, I totally get it. I was literally like, I don't care if something crashes and burns and the movie never comes out at this point. <laughs> like... Stephen King yeah, saw vault it. it. It's only it's only going to get worse from here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like no more <laughs> lock lock down all reviews from here on out. But nobody I mean, else gets to see it. I do got to yeah. say, like it's a it's the movies he references. Like I also like want to vomit thinking of my movie like considered in the same realm as them because it's <laughs> Virginia it is, Wolf. Jesus, like I mean, good I, lord. It's funny because it's like I understand kind of like what what he's talking about because of the relationships and that they're these kind of like there's so much new like nuance to me in the script of like these relationships that like it's not something we necessarily see within the horror genre. And it is almost because of this model of like, you know, the budgetary limits like there's you can't do a lot. So it was like, how do we let's play up these relationships more in this first half so it doesn't feel like chamber piece, chamber piece, one third horror Mm -hmm. movie. Like make it so that like this, how can we use this to our advantage, our limitations to our advantage in a way. And, and it, it's just really cool to see like that, that kind of reflected like, oh, he saw that, you know, but still like, I don't, I hope to God no one sees that quote and goes into the movie, like thinking of those movies, because they're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> it's there to find if you want to find it, though. Yeah. You know, if if the way you watch movies is you watch that movie and say, there's no, no character development, you're probably fucked and you're not going to pick up on that. But, uh, you know, if you're paying attention, certainly in the DNA. Yeah. And it, I, that, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head of like the thing that really broke me was that like, he really paid attention. It's not that like he got sent a movie and was like, Oh, this is nice or whatever. But like he was extremely thoughtful and detailed in his responses. And, and especially I want to mention about like the kids, 
um, which isn't, you know, obviously part of this pull quote, but like he was very, very uh, complimentary of the kids, which was, I think, really cool for them. It's fucking hard to get good kid actors, I think. You know, like they were it, a blast. I would say I 50, love working 50. with kids. I love working with kids. I love working with animals. I love doing stunts. It's like I'm just shooting myself in the foot with all the things you're not supposed to like. <laughs> <laughs> I love shooting on the water. Yeah. I do. I do. I love shooting outdoors. I love shooting in the woods. Like, you know, when I did Brighton Rock, we were like hiking into our location. Um, that was maybe a little intense, but like, I love that stuff. I see Issa Lopez now like posting all this stuff from like the Arctic Circle while right. she's doing like the new True, True Detective. Detective. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm so jealous. That looks awesome. And they're like bundled yeah. in like full snow gear, like in snowmobiles. Yeah. They get the, the northern lights. Yeah, northern yeah. lights in the shot. And you're like, fuck yeah, that's an adventure. You guys are going out on an adventure. Yeah. This thing. She's come on the show a couple of times. She's one of my all time favorite guests. It, in fact, if you've not heard it, I would encourage you to go listen. She did an episode on The Shining once that is just like a fucking master class. Um, That's awesome. But I cannot I cannot wait for her to come back because I've seen those photos, too. And I'm like, I, I have so many questions about this. Yeah, I want to <laughs> like, know those stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess this is the point in the show where we uh, uh, invite you to uh, tell people where they can find your latest movie and where they can find you and. Are you, you know, this is a pure promo mode for you. So okay, what, do you, cool. what do you got for us? Um, so the movie yes. comes out Tuesday the 17th and will be available for rent or purchase anywhere. Uh, however it is that you rent or purchase your movies digitally, it will be available. It is being put out by Paramount Home Entertainment. Um, that does not mean it's on Paramount Plus. Uh, they're just the distributor. <laughs> So it will be there for the first three months. It will then, on March 17th, uh, go to MGM+. Plus. So if you have MGM+, Plus, then you can watch it there for free if you have that subscription. Uh, and then I think eventually it goes to Amazon Prime if you really want to wait for like nine months. But, you know, I'm super uh, unable to do that with horror movies. So, no. you know, go for gold and uh, try and get it on Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely. I would strongly recommend that for our listeners. It's you you will like this movie. It's a hell of a lot of fun. And uh Roxanne, thank you for being here today. This was this was great. Uh I'm glad Thanks, we guys. finally got Pet Cemetery 2 into the main feed. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Many thanks to Roxanne Benjamin for joining us. A first timer, and I think she acquitted herself fairly well, don't you? Yeah, she did great. And uh, you know, first timer with a, a first timer title in the main feed. Yeah. Always a pleasure when we get those, you know? We've, yeah, we've, for sure. Um, we fucking run into a lot of repeat titles. Not this week. <laughs> and definitely not. Uh, yeah, this week uh, for both this episode you, you've just listened to and our bonus in this Friday, brand new uh, things that we've talked about. And even one I had uh, never seen before. And that's this uh, this week's Patreon episode. Uh, can, do we just want to jump into it? I think we should just jump into it. Yeah, fuck it. Let's go for it. Fuck it. it. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and grab it since we just were leading down that road anyway. So why mm -hmm. don't we talk about this week on, on our Patreon on Friday? We are <laughs> diving into a movie that neither one of us had ever watched before called A Return to Salem's Lot, which is a <laughs> bizarre, uh, like straight bizarre <laughs> fucking sequel yeah. to the Toby Hooper miniseries. 
uh, that has almost nothing to do with either Stephen King's book or the Toby Hooper miniseries. It's a sequel to it's a, an R rated feature that was directed by Larry Cohen of cue the wing serpent and the stuff fame. And it's got like cursing kids, child marriage. Uh, it's got like <laughs> terror masks in it. It's, it is so f- bizarre and bonkers. And we'd, we'd kind of heard about its reputation. I've seen like clips. People have sent us clips of it. Like this kid cursing with his dad in the car and like lighting up a cigarette and shit. And like, what the hell could this movie possibly be? Whatever you think a Salem's lot sequel would be. It is absolutely uh, not what's in this movie. The, the, the damn thing opens with the tribal sacrifice for, for fuck's sake. Um, yeah. And I, I yeah. will add that one of us, enjoyed this a lot Mm. more than the other one of us so uh yeah who is it you'll you'll have to sign up to the patreon to find out (laughs) yeah yeah um and yeah do you want to talk about uh who the guest is that's helping us explore this title yeah the guest is uh richard newby who uh whose work you might have read uh in uh over on the hollywood reporter or in the pages of fangoria magazine he is also a returning guest to the show he did a bonus episode with us sometime early last year uh, about the Dark Tower series. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wanted to bring Richard back. He was a good guest. And um, this was incredibly like on his list of titles that he'd be interested in talking about. And we were <laughs> like, oh, perfect opportunity to get this done. So uh, whether or not uh, we were both happy with Richard after making that call is another another conversation for another day. But you'll have to hear it on Friday when it hits the Patreon, which once again is patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. And then next week on the show... Uh, on the main feed this next Wednesday, we have a return to the title Cujo. And mm-hmm. our guest for this is somebody that both Scott and I are very excited about. This is a director who we're particularly big fans of. And they, uh, let's say he doesn't, he hasn't appeared on the show before. This is kind mm-hmm. of a left field uh, thing that kind of fell into our laps. And we were like, I don't know about you, Scott, but I was like kind of surprised going, oh, you you think this can happen? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And they like got real quick. It went from from, hey, would you be interested in talking to this guy to like, OK, here's the record date and here's the title he wants to talk about. I was so I was so excited about that. Yeah, uh, it does not work like that. Usually, folks, no, (laughs) (laughs) you know, usually what happens is somebody emails us and says, hey, would you be interested in having God himself on the show? And we're like, fuck, yeah, we'll talk to God. And then they go and email God and then six months goes by and then we hear that God's not available. (laughs) Um, Not so here. You know, we got our guest uh, lickety split. And um, yeah, it's a guy whose work we're we're both big fans of one, one or two movies in particular. And um yeah, I'm ex- I'm ex- we haven't recorded it yet, but I'm very excited to speak yeah. to this person. Yeah, allow it. Indeed. No hints. No. <laughs> so, I think that I think that does it for for this week's episode. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, uh it was a good one. I hope y'all enjoyed it and uh mm-hmm. yeah. So, we'll make sure to head on over to the the Patreon for our bonus up this Friday on a, a return to Salem's Lot with Richard Newby and uh next week in the main feed for a little discussion about Everybody's favorite rabid St. Bernard. Adios, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs> <laughs>